All right, before we begin tonight's study, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity this evening, and we come into your presence acknowledging you as our Father, that we are your children and you are our Father. We acknowledge you as the one and only Holy God. And as we look into these scriptures tonight, we pray that it would only be by your spirit that you would illuminate the truth of your word to us. As the hymn says, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we ask that that would be the case tonight. Refresh us in your word. Teach us how to pray as we're going to look into the subject of prayer tonight. And we just ask that all of this would be for your praise and glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, the text for tonight is Matthew chapter 6. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to uh, look at and review Jesus' instruction to the disciples on how to pray. Before we do that, and because we are speaking about prayer, I first want to call you to prayer in a particular direction. As I've had the opportunity to stand up here, I've experienced what it is to prepare, um, to stand up here and to speak. It's given me a sense of appreciation for Pastor Jim and others who do that on a regular basis, as now I have a, a deeper understanding of the labor and the work and the toil um, that really goes into preparing to speak. And I guess not only that, but also the... Uh, spiritual forces that that would come against you you know we've all been in a situation where you know we've meant to have devotions went to pick up our bible and there's distractions and there's different things that would come against us and uh, whether it's our flesh enticing it away or the evil one that is there to buffet i think that scrutiny and that intensity is something that those who are dedicated to preaching and the teaching the word on a consistent basis, experience in a way that uh, the rest of us don't get to see. And just having tasted and experienced a little bit of that, um, I definitely have a, an appreciation for those who are committed to the word of God and standing up here. And so I do want to call you and encourage you, whether you're listening online or here to pray for Pastor Jim or whoever your pastor may be as you're listening online, Pray for them. I don't think we know and understand what all they go through. And so we do need to lift them up and encourage them as much as we can. So the Lord put that on my heart to begin with. And I just wanted to share and encourage you in that direction as we're talking about prayer tonight, uh, that we can pray for our teachers and understand that they struggle and labor in ways that the rest of us do not. So, as we mentioned, tonight's text is uh, Matthew chapter 6, and I, I guess what the genesis for this and what brought me onto this particular topic as we've been discussing and studying on, on uh, Sunday mornings, the book of Revelation, verse by verse, as we've been going through that study, the discussion of, of the kingdom has come up, and we've talked about it on, on Wednesdays and with the different prophets as well, and we talk about the kingdom so frequently, and uh, it's been on my mind, and we referenced uh, the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer and how uh, the kingdom is referenced there. And so that's kind of what drew me to this particular text initially. But I thought I want to 
reintroduce myself to the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayers. Maybe it's more appropriately entitled as it is Jesus directly teaching the disciples how to pray. And he's going to uh, not only cover prayer, but also alms and, and giving here in the, in the first couple of verses and uh, also addresses fasting. I don't know if we'll make it to that tonight. If we do, we'll see. But that's the, uh, the purpose and what kind of God laid on my heart to speak about tonight. I, I wanted to come to this text again and, and reintroduce myself and, and you to it. A lot of times when we prepare to speak, so many times we're preaching to ourselves, and this is kind of what was on my mind, so I guess you get to hear it. Um, so this is Matthew chapter 6. Like we mentioned, this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through chapter 7. So we're right in the middle of this. And verse 1 starts as Jesus begins to instruct the disciples on, on how to pray. He does so with a warning in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So before teaching the disciples how to pray, how to give their alms. Jesus is sure to give them this, this disclaimer, this warning that they are to be mindful of in order that they can pray and that they can give their gifts to the poor in the proper way. Because he's going to give us the contrast here, those that don't do it in the proper way, the Pharisees, and we're going to see what the difference is, how they approach prayer, how they specifically, in this case, uh, approach giving as well. And we're going to see that it is mindful. It, it, it's very appropriate that Jesus would start this with a warning, because as we come to how he's going to reference the sovereign and holy God, it's important that our mindset is correct and that we are approaching him and him only. And we're not looking to appease a different audience besides him. And that is what the Pharisees love to do. So there's this disclaimer, this warning that is attached to a reward, as we see. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So this warning is attached to a particular reward. And we know that the scriptures teach us that there are rewards uh, that we are to expect and to receive. He's talked about that. Uh, Jesus has in already here on the Sermon on the Mount, the previous chapter in chapter 5, uh, when he says, Blessed are you, in this case, the, the context is uh, persecution and, and trials. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here we see Jesus already has referenced reward previously in this context. And so he's continuing that thought that this reward is something that we have an expectation for. And that if we don't approach prayer and giving in the right way, we see that the reward is in jeopardy. Paul also talks about the, uh, the reward and the crown of life that will be awarded to those who are faithful. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one 
may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we know from Jesus, from Paul, from the book of Revelation, we know from John uh, that there is and there exists rewards uh, to be had. Uh, Also in Colossians chapter 3, just to give you another verse that references these rewards and this inheritance, Paul in in Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. And that's what we're going to see here uh, in chapter 6 of Matthew. We're going to see how there are those who desire to do their works for men instead of how Paul lays it out here. Whether, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so we can see that there is a reward and that if we are searching to appease men, that that award award is in jeopardy. As Jesus continues in verse 2, he gives the example. So when you give to the poor, when you give alms, this is alms is giving to the poor most commonly in forms of a, a monetary gift. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. So here we see the example of what he's laid out in verse 1. Beware not to do this, not to practice your righteousness, not to practice your giving for the appeal, for the honor from men versus God. And you can see the the Pharisees here, uh, you know, sounding a trumpet before them, you know, calling them hypocrites. They do this in the synagogues and in the streets. Of course, these are the high traffic areas. And, you know, they sounded their trumpet under a pretense to call the people to them so that the people could, they could give the alms to them. But really, they just wanted more attention. And that, that was their reasoning for sounding the trumpet so that everyone would see, look at me, I'm about to give, come look at me. That was their reward, the the honor of men, as Jesus says here, uh, that they may be honored by men. And they are referred to as hypocrites, uh, which is uh, in the Greek word, you know, means actor or stage player, somebody who is two-faced. They they present themselves as being holy and, and really inside, of course, we know they're filled with dead men's bones, uh, because they desire to show themselves as one thing, show themselves as self-righteous, but really they are concerned with receiving the praise and honor from men rather than than from God. So they they stand in the streets and they go to the synagogue sounding their trumpets. Uh, They they do all of this for the praise of men. And, And what does Jesus say here? They got a reward They receive their reward. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The reward is paid off. There's nothing owed to them. They just have a reward that is from men rather than God because they sowed to men their righteous acts rather than God. And as such, they reap the reward from men, honor and praise from men, which seems incomparable to what the honor and praise and reward from God would be. But yet... That's our flesh. I think it's easy sometimes for us to look at the Pharisees as as hypocrites and point to them and to say to them, you know, how could you possibly be doing something so obviously self-righteous? But, 
you know, we do the same things now. We just don't do it with a trumpet. We just do it on Facebook. And I, I think the, the Pharisees probably would have been big fans of, of Facebook. So as Jesus continues in this instruction, this initial portion is about the warning. Before he even gets into teaching us how to pray, he first and foremost wants to establish uh, that we know and have the proper motive when we pray. So he continues in verse 3, but in contrast to how these hypocrites give, but when you give to the poor, when you give your alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So that's the exact opposite, not done out in the streets, not done with fanfare, with, with trumpets, but even to the degree where he, he, he words it as, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. A, a proverbial statement that just expresses secrecy. And I think it's even suggesting that don't even allow yourself to know too much because you can get built up in yourself. Well, look at me. You know, even, even if no one else sees it, your own ego can build you up and you go, oh, that, you know, that was pretty good I gave to those people. And you can really, I mean, our, our ego and our pride is there just as, just as it was for the Pharisees. And so Jesus' point, do this in secret. Do this away from where you will receive praise and honor from men. But here in secret, your father sees what is done and he will reward you. That's the reward that you want. That's the reward that we desire, not a, uh, a reward from men that, that is meaningless, but the reward from the eternal father. He continues then, and, and now he's going to give the example. He gave it in giving, but now he's going to say the same thing and, and focus on prayers. We transition into uh, the main focus of what we're looking at tonight, prayer. Verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and, in the, and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So we see the same thing. Their giving and their prayer is done for the appeal of men. It's done before men and for men. It's not done for God. It's done for their own particular desire for approval from men. They even go to the synagogues and the street corners, even the intersections where there's more traffic. They want to go to the highest traffic area so they can be seen by the most men. And then Jesus is going to lay out again the contrast. This is how the hypocrites, the Pharisees, those who are two-faced and those who are actors who portray themselves and, and lift themselves up before men, this is how they do it. But you, in contrast, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So we see, as with giving, also with prayer, our approach to Him is one-on-one, -on -one, not to be seen by men, not to be uh, something that is a show for men, but when we communicate with our Father, we communicate with Him directly on a personal level. 
he and I together versus something that is to be shown for men. That is a big difference. The reward that they have is temporal. It's fleeting. It's the praise and honor of men. It's nothing that is lasting, but your father will reward you for praying to him in secret versus having the desire. And I think we all feel these prayers when we have particular prayers where, all right, I had an opportunity to maybe pray in public. And, you know, I felt kind of good about that one. You know, I feel like, you know, maybe I said some, some good things there. And, but as you've said, and, and as is so true, even our best prayers or what we think are our best prayers have more sin in them uh, to send us to hell than, than anything. So we always have to be conscious uh, of that pride and to know that um, our motives, because that's, that's really what Jesus is getting here, your motives, who you're directing your attention toward uh, before he gets into this instruction, that our motives are clear and that we're not trying to appeal to men rather than God. And then verse 7, here's another warning that he's giving to us, that we don't pray as the Gentiles do, in, with vain repetition. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. I think we've all heard prayers, and whether it's all of the different pagan religions, uh, Muslims praying at a particular time of day, praying the same prayer, whether it's the in Elijah's day, the prophets of Baal praying over and over, or in, in Acts 19 um, with the uh, Ephesians praying to uh, Diana. They prayed for two hours repeating the same thing over and over. And yet that's not who we pray to. We pray to a God who hears us. We pray to a God not like these false gods who they do not hear. And so there's no need to embody this vain and and meaningless repetition as as Jesus describes it to where there's much speaking or we feel that, you know, we can somehow persuade God if we just speak something over and over and into this uh, repetitious way. God hears us and he desires to do as we ask. We don't need to badger him or or repeat things in, in a way that um, you know, maybe Catholics would with a, with a rosary, uh, things like that. When we speak, we have the great privilege to approach him and to know that through his spirit, we can communicate to him and he will hear us. Uh, there's no need to uh, get into this repetition that the, that the Gentiles do. And they, they think that because of it, that they will be heard, that they can persuade or they can obligate God because of their much speaking so those are the, the warnings that uh, he's given to us. And I just want to jump down a little bit before we get into him, Jesus instructing us how to pray in the next chapter, in chapter 7, just to underscore that he does have a desire to hear us, that he is our Father, and as such has a desire to give us our needs in, in the next chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, which we won't get to, but I just wanted to jump ahead of that. In verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, 
and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a, sh- a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Does that sound like a a God that we need to badger with vain repetition? No, he's a father who desires to give us what we need. And he knows what we need more than we even do. And so we can approach him on that personal level, knowing that he knows intimately what our needs may be. And he knows beyond that. And so we don't need to vainly repeat things over and over in an attempt to try to... uh, persuade him into doing something for us. So with those warnings, with those disclaimers in mind that that speak to our motive, that we don't pray or we don't give our alms in a way that we're trying to gain glory from men, teaching us that we don't speak in, in a vain way, he then instructs us how to pray. He says in verse 9, pray in this way. This is how you are to pray. After your motives are clear and you know that you're approaching God in the right way, not for the wrong reasons, then you pray this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll start with our Father. This denotes two realities in our approach to God. First, that there is a possessive relationship in the one who we are praying to, that we are his And he is ours. We are his children. He is our father. And secondly, there's that supreme authority that we recognize in him, that he is the father. He is the one who instructs. He is the one who teaches. He is the one who has the authority. He's the one even who chastens and corrects if need be. Uh, He is our father. And so... If we're going to pray to him, we need to first and foremost understand the reality of who he is and who we are in relation to him. We are his children. He is the father. And we need to approach him in that way. Of course, we know that uh, Romans 8 speaks uh, to this relationship of of him, uh, God being a father to us and we his children as we're adopted. Uh, Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. For you were not, have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry, Abba, Father. That's that relationship. He is the Father to whom we appeal. Galatians chapter 4 says the same thing in our relationship as sons to him as Father. Um, because you are sons, this is chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we can see that our relationship to him is a father-child relationship, and we approach him in that way, knowing that he has the authority, he has the instruction, uh, and we wait to hear from him as a child does from a father. And then he says, who is in heaven? So we have an understanding of our relationship together with him, that we're his children here, his father, but then his location, our father who is in heaven. He is the most high God. 
possessor of heaven and earth. He is the God located in heaven and doing as he pleases. He says in Isaiah, and it's repeated in Acts 7, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. That's where he reigns and his throne in heaven. And we get to appeal to him on that throne because, as he says here, he is holy, he is our father. And so we know when we direct our communication to him that he is sovereignly reigning from heaven, reigning over all. And we have the great privilege to appeal to the creator who rules and reigns from heaven and controls all things on earth. I don't know of anything else that we could possibly appeal to that would be better than that. Uh, One who controls everything and one who is sovereign. But Jesus describes him as this, hallowed be your name, holy. His name is set apart. He is a thrice holy God, as we learned in our study in Revelation Um, The four living creatures that that testify to him day and night, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. And they, they testify to his character. That is his chief attribute, is his holiness. We talked about that a lot, that God, first and foremost, is a holy God. And all his other attributes, whether it's his love or whatever other attributes that we address and we, we give to him, his faithfulness, his love, his, his patience that he demonstrates, all of that come from, first and foremost, the understanding that God is holy. And I think that's why we're instructed to acknowledge that from the very onset of our prayers. Pray in this way that your name is holy. And name meaning his his character, his reputation, his authority. All of that is at stake with him and all of the attributes that he embodies. All of that is holy. Jesus speaking to the the father in John 12, uh, he says this uh, before his death, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say, father, save me from that hour. But for this purpose, I have come into the to this hour, Father, now glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So God is in the enterprise of glorifying his name. He's concerned about his name, his reputation, uh, his character, his authority. And so we need, as we pray to him, recognize that that name, that character, that authority, that reputation of God is holy. It's sacred. It's, it's set aside. It's, it's something that is different than any other human character. It, we can't approach it. Uh, we can't understand it. It is something that is unique and other from any other name or authority or reputation. He is a thrice holy God. And, and it's intentional that Jesus lays it out this way, that we recognize that when we come to him, when we pray to him, that first and foremost, we know we're praying to the Father and he is holy. And even before we can get into our petitions where we ask him for particular things, we're called to this. We're called to recognizing him as such. And then after we do that, in verse 10, Jesus continues. He talks about the kingdom. So we recognize his holiness, recognize him as Father, reigning in heaven, his authority, his name is holy, set aside. And then we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is 
part that I was talking about that originally caught my interest and drew me to this particular text. The kingdom, because we talk so much about the kingdom. The prophets talk about the kingdom. John in Revelation talks about the kingdom. Jesus talked about the kingdom. And what he is saying, there's, there's this expectation of the kingdom to the people that he's speaking to, the disciples, all being Jews, they had this expectation. They know what the prophets said. So what kingdom are they expecting? They're expecting the Davidic kingdom that was established in Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to David that he would establish his kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And then we know that Daniel also prophesied of that kingdom that would be a kingdom that would end all other kingdoms and a kingdom without end. It would go on eternally. They all had this expectation of that kingdom to come. And we know the, uh, the disciples in Acts demonstrated that expectation again in chapter 2 when they were asking him, you know, when are you going to establish the, the kingdom? They were expecting it. And here we are, we're to pray for that kingdom. We're for, to pray for that kingdom to come because that is the ultimate culmination of all things is that kingdom that goes on without end eternally where he reigns on earth as it says right here your will be done on earth as it is in heaven how is that kingdom supposed to look well it's him reigning on earth doing his will on earth as it is in heaven that's how we know too that this is not to be spiritualized in some way because he's talking about it happening on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think we can look around and say God's will is being carried out on earth the same way that it is in heaven. When we see all the, uh, all the evil and all the wickedness around us. But what does that look like? What will that kingdom look like with his reign on earth when his will and only his will uh, will be done without any unrighteousness without any people who wish to come against him and, and people who love unrighteousness and, and evil. What will that look like? We get a picture of that in uh, Revelation 21. And, and here's how it is described. This, is, this gives us a little bit of an idea of what that kingdom on earth where his will is being executed looks like. John sees the uh, uh, the new heavens and the new earth in, in chapter 21. And he describes it this way in, in verse 22. I saw no temple in it uh, for the Lord God Almighty, the lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of, the, of God illuminated it. And its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will be never closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean, nothing that practices abomination and lying, all of that has been cast away. And in the new heavens and new earth with a kingdom that reigns eternally, a kingdom without end, we can see this glorious manifestation of Christ in the new Jerusalem and the nations going up, giving their glory, giving their honor, coming to pay 
tribute to him and to worship him and nothing unclean, no unrighteousness anywhere to be found. That is his will on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're to pray for. We're to have an expectation for that. The kingdom is is not just a a grand finale, so to speak, but it is in the eternal destination that we all hope and long for and that which was promised. What a hope and what a joy it is to be a, a part of that. And so I think Jesus rightly points us in that direction to pray for the coming of that kingdom and pray for God's will to be done here as it is there. And now we see after recognizing God for who he is, recognizing his attribute of holiness, praying for his kingdom, his ultimate manifestation. It's only then in verse 11 that we get to petition for on our behalf, on, on, on something temporal, our needs in the here and now. When he says, give us this day our daily bread. I found it striking to read this. The way he words that, that, it, that it's our daily bread, it, he's not as if we're asking for bread for the next 10 years, or that sufficient for each day, that God will provide sufficiently for each day. That, that's what we are to ask for. We're not to be concerned with the next decade or that this is our temporal home. And he's promised to provide for us in giving us bread, giving us our daily bread. We've been talking about the bread of life. Uh, in our men's group on Tuesday uh, evenings. And we know that he is the bread of life. And we, we learned as we were studying that, that bread indicates something very important because every day the, uh, the desire was to go and find food and find bread. And bread was essential. And he has promised to give us our essential needs, what we need for that day, uh, he will give us. And we're to ask. And by the way, notice that All of these things, whether we're praying for the kingdom or whether we're praying for our daily bread, he's promised to give us. And yet we're still called to pray for them. We know he's going to do it. We know he's going to establish the kingdom. He's promised that. He's promised to give us food uh, as as we need it. And the end of the chapter here, I think it would be good for us just to read it. We're not going to get to the end of the chapter, but I just wanted to point out that how God has promised to provide for us in such a simple way. Uh, In verse 25, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sell, nor do they reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they. And who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to their life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith, Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have all these needs, but seek first the kingdom. Uh, Again, a reference to his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. 
tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But notice the priority there. He will provide for you. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. And this will be provided. He desires to provide these things for you. And he's promised to do so. And yet we are still to pray for them. To pray for our daily bread. Knowing that he will be faithful. And he continues to provide it for us. And he continues. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now this is the more challenging portion of the Lord's Prayer. And when I first started studying, like I, like I mentioned, my motivation was the kingdom and try to understand uh, the prayer a little bit better. And when I got to this part, I found it a little bit challenging because we can see Jesus gives us a little more insight into verse 12 because he reiterates it in verse 14 and 15. So let's read those together with 12 so we get the full context. Again, in verse 12, he says, And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. There's people that come to this text and will try to make that say that, well, we're forgiven much, we are to forgive. And that's, we know that uh, Paul says similar things. But in this context, it's clear uh, that what Jesus is saying, unless you forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's how he lays it out in 14 and 15. So how do we understand that? And when I first came to this, I was a little wondering over it and you know, looking at the context of who Jesus was speaking to. And so I, as I do, uh, when I sometimes have questions, I'm not sure. Uh, I'll jump on, uh, on the website and listen. Well, how, what did Jim have to say about that? I want to see, I want to see if we line up. And, and that's what I did. So I went there and, and we were thinking the same line, along the same lines. So I, I feel good about this, uh, to know that, that we actually, you know, I guess the Bible says what it says and it means what it means. And when we take it for what it says, we can come to the same conclusions. But that is to know that at this time, to whom Jesus was speaking, the disciples, he had not met the destination of the cross yet. He had not been there and said to Telestai, it is finished. The debt is paid. That was yet to come. And we can see in contrast that after that happens, after he has that destination post to Telestai, what does Paul teach us later? He says, be kind to one another. Tend, this is in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He's telling us we are forgiven in Christ. And so we know that this is pointing to Christ. And we know that afterwards, yes, the purpose of what Jesus is saying is, is indeed that we are to forgive others in the way that we have been forgiven but as he says here in verses 14 and 15, at this time, he had not yet been on the cross. He had not yet been able to say the debt is paid. And yet now we can look after that and echo exactly as, as what Paul says here. In Colossians, he says the same thing. Colossians 3. So as those who have been chosen by God and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. 
Whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. Again, putting that in the forgiven past tense, that we are forgiven, that that is a condition that we can know and understand that that debt is paid, that we don't have to worry about, well, if I don't forgive perfectly, I won't be forgiven. Um, Because the reality is we don't forgive. None of us can look and say, well, I forgive everyone in my life perfectly uh, because we haven't. We've transgressed against people and we don't even know what we've done and we haven't been forgiven or we haven't forgiven others for those things as well. But yet he forgives perfectly. And I, I think when Paul was teaching the Jews in the synagogue in Acts 13, it, it kind of sheds some light on this transition uh, from before the cross to post-cross. This is uh, Paul and Barnabas when they're in Antioch. And listen to what he says the Jews in, to the Jews in the synagogue there. Uh, this is Acts 13, verses 37 and 39. As he's teaching there, he says to them, He whom God raised did not undergo decay... He's referenced uh, David there as David did uh, undergo decay in in the Psalms and how this is uh, the passage in Psalms there is is speaking of Christ uh, who did not undergo decay. He whom raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which they could not be freed through the law of Moses. So here we see it. We see that through Christ, forgiveness of sins is now proclaimed to you in a way that it hadn't been prior to Christ on the cross. But praise be to God that he paid that debt and he has forgiven us. And so that ought to be our motivation. We are to forgive others. That is the the spirit of what Jesus is saying here as he teaches the Uh, The disciples here, we are to forgive others. That is our expectation because we have been forgiven so much. And we know we're even called to, as Jesus said, forgive 70 times seven, you know, forgive over and over just as our transgressions have mounted up to ways in which we can't even uh, consider and understand. But yet we're called to forgive over and over. And then he continues in verse 13, after we understand the context of uh, this forgiveness and what Jesus is, is teaching us here, he ends the prayer in this way, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know that the word temptation is used uh, in different ways throughout the scripture. Sometimes it's, it's talking about trials and sometimes it's talking about temptation in the sense of being allured into some type of backsliding or uh, some type of sin of that nature. But I don't think it can be the latter because we know in James, we know that we are not tempted by God. James chapter one, we're told there, let no one say he is tempted when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So what it's saying here is we know that when we come to these trials, we, we can pray to Christ that he would not lead us through those trials, but deliver us from that evil hour, from the, the evil that would come upon us. He is our deliverer. We are to pray to him as such. 
It's similar to what Jesus prayed to the Father in Matthew 36 in Gethsemane when he says, uh, the disciples here, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then he says this, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup from pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So here Jesus is praying for deliverance, but he does so under the authority of God's will. We can pray for deliverance, whatever trial that we come to, but yet whatever God's will, sometimes God's will is for us to go through that trial, is for us to be tested in that way. And so our prayer ought to be in accordance, similar to what Jesus prayed, that we can pray to the Father, deliver us, have us to pass through this trial, yet your will be done and deliver us from that evil. And so in looking over this, we can see that while it's a short prayer, there's such an emphasis on recognizing the character of God and then prioritizing us and our needs secondarily. And then he wraps up the prayer in the same way, talking about the kingdom again, ending it this way, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So reference back to that kingdom, the power and the glory that, and he qualifies all of those things by forever, that these by the nature of God, whether it's his kingdom, his glory, his power, all of those are eternal attributes that he has, he embodies and that he is going to display in his kingdom forever. And that's the God that we appeal to, a God that establishes his kingdom eternally, uh, a God that is, whose name is holy, uh, a God that desires to give us our daily bread, but yet we are to reach out to him, to call to him and to pray for him, to give us that daily bread, pray to him to give us uh, and bring and manifest his kingdom. And yet we know he has promised to do so. I pray that he delivers us, that he protects us, deliver us from temptation, have us to forgive our debts and not to hold grudges against others, deliver us from evil, because his is all and in all. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory forever. And so we can look to him and know that he is that sovereign God, that when we pray to him, we are praying to the creator of the universe who is holy above all else. And he desires to supply our needs. And he desires for us to know him for his true character, to know and to long for his kingdom, that that would be manifest here on earth, to look forward to that and to know that he has promised to give it. So I just wanted to review over that, reiterate it in our minds and just to get that understanding of the purpose and the intention of Jesus' instruction here, because this is an instruction. It's, it's a pattern for us to pray after. I don't think we need to pray this prayer every time, but it, the, the pattern is there for us um, to look after and to model and to understand that this is the way in which we ought to approach God. You know, first and foremost, with that declaration, with that warning, that when we come to him, we must do so in purity of heart, not looking for praise and glory from men as 
the hypocrites do. So that's what I have uh, for you tonight. Um, thank you for being here and for listening. Um, we will, I guess, dismiss with a, a word of prayer. Let's bow. Father in heaven, you are our holy father. You are righteous, holy, holy, holy. Uh, we thank you that you are sovereignly in control of all things. We thank you that you have promised and will deliver a kingdom unlike any other kingdom, a kingdom in which there will be no end, a kingdom in which you will rule and reign and there will be nothing unclean or unrighteous to ever come into it. We look forward to that. We long and we pray that you would br bring that here, bring that to earth. Your will be done here just as it is done in heaven, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would continue to supply us with the daily needs that we have. You feed us so, so much we have, Lord, so, so much that you give to us, clothes, food, shelter, all of those daily things that, that we need. You supply them uh, and give them to us, but yet we ask that we would be grateful for it. We ask that we would forgive others as you have forgiven us to know that we can look to Christ and to know that at Calvary, he said, it is finished. And so we have great forgiveness and as such, we must forgive one another and rejoice in the fact that we are cleansed and pure because of your great sacrifice. Lord, we pray that uh, you would continue to uphold us, strengthen us. We pray that you would uh, continue to be with this body of believers. Thank you for one another. All of those that couldn't be here this evening, we pray for them, those who are sick, those who are troubled. Whatever it may be, we pray that you would bless and care and nourish each one of those, for your name's sake, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor, because you're worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.